The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I'd like to welcome you to Berean Bible Church. Um, It's a very special day today in Christianity. The single most significant event in the history of the human race took place on the first Sunday after Passover in about the year AD 30. That was the resurrection of our Lord Yeshua the Christ. Rome butchered him, they put him to death, and that was the power that Rome had. Rome had the power of death, but he overcame the grave, he defeated death, and he promises resurrection life to all who trust in him. That's a promise we can get behind from someone who overcame death. Now, the majority of the church believes that the resurrection of believers will happen sometime in the future, and that it will be physical. But we as preterists say that it happened in the past, and that it was spiritual. So what does the Bible say? Well, in our time this morning, we're going to look at what the Bible says about the resurrection and different aspects of it. Um, hopefully we'll give you a good comprehensive view of what the resurrection is all about. Paul looked forward to a future resurrection in his day. And in Philippians 3, he says that he had forsaken his own righteousness and trusted only and completely in Christ. He says in order that he might attain the resurrection of the dead. Philippians 3, 10 and 11 says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, what exactly did Paul mean by this? What is the resurrection that he hoped to obtain? Was he hoping that his physical body would one day be taken out of the grave and given new life? We're going to attempt to answer these questions this morning, but let's begin by reviewing the context of these verses. The theme of Philippians 3, 4 through 11, is justification by faith alone. And the key verse in this section is verse 9. Paul says, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Paul sees only two kinds of righteousness there's the righteousness of of he didn't want to have his own righteousness, that's self-righteousness, that's the righteousness of the law, but he wanted to have the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That is God's righteousness, that is salvation. This righteousness that Paul wanted to have, that which only comes from faith in Christ, is speaking of justification by faith alone. Now in verse 8, Paul tells us that he no longer he is no longer trusting his own righteousness in order that he may gain Christ, and then in verses 9-11, through 11, he tells us what it means to gain Christ. In verse 9, he tells us that to gain Christ means to receive His righteousness. Then he goes on in verses 10-11 through 11 to explain further what it means to gain Christ. He says that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and may share His suffering, becoming like Him in His death. And I see all the things that he mentions here to be results of justification. He suffered the loss of all things and counts them as rubbish in order that he may gain Christ. And gaining Christ means receiving his righteousness, knowing him, knowing the power of his resurrection, knowing the fellowship of suffering, and being made like him in our death to sin. In verse 11 he says that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So Paul says he suffered the loss of all things and he counts them as rubbish in order that he may attain the resurrection. Now, the Greek word that Paul uses here for resurrection, ex anastasis, this Greek word is only used here in the New Testament. It's the word anastasis, which means resurrection, with the preposition ek in front of it, which is the equivalent of out. So this literally would be the out resurrection from the corpses. This verse is speaking of the resurrection of the righteous. They're going to come out from the dead. 
the resurrection of the righteous will take place out of the total number of those who have died. Robinson's word pictures in the New Testament says this. Apparently Paul's thinking here only of the resurrection of believers out from the dead. And so double eck. Paul is not denying a general resurrection by this language, but is emphasizing that of believers. So Paul's talking about the believers being resurrected. Now what exactly did he mean by the resurrection? The traditional view that is held by most of the church is that when a believer dies, their body goes into the grave, their spirit goes to heaven to be with the Lord. They're in a disembodied state, awaiting the resurrection of the body at the end of time. Then at the end of time, the Lord returns, He resurrects all the decayed bodies of the dead saints, He puts them back together, and then He changes them, the physically resurrected bodies, He changes them into spiritual, immortal bodies like Christ. That sound like what you've been taught, what you've heard, what the church believes? Have you ever thought about how the Lord's going to put all those decayed bodies back together? Will He regather and reassemble all the scattered atoms and molecules which composed individual bodies at the time of death? This problem is addressed by M.C. Tenney in his book, The Reality of the Resurrection. He says this, When the body of Roger Williams founder of the Rhode Island colony, was exhumed for reburial, it was found that the root of an apple tree had penetrated the head of the coffin and had followed down William's spine, dividing into a fork at the legs. The tree had absorbed the chemicals of the decaying body and had transmuted them into its wood and fruit. The apples, in turn, had been eaten by people, quite unconsciously of the fact that they were indirectly taking into their system part of the long-dead Williams. The objection may therefore be raised, how, out of the complex sequence of decay, absorption, and new formation, will it be possible to resurrect believers of past ages and to reconstitute them as separate entities? Now, the problem of joint ownership of atoms and molecules is a big problem. Because after death, various bodily particles return to dust, we re-enter the food chain, we get assimilated into the plants, we get eaten by animals, and digested into countless other human bodies. At the resurrection, who gets which atoms and molecules back? As you can see, it can get quite complicated. Well, another thing that has bothered me is, why does God raise Put back our dead, decayed bodies. Get them all back together. Raise them and then change them into an immortal body. I don't understand what's the purpose of those putting those old bodies all back together. But that's basically, basically what the church teaches about the resurrection. Now, the question is, is that what the Bible teaches? I don't think so. But one very important thing that we need to understand about resurrection is that resurrection was the hope of Israel. We see this in several scriptures, Acts 23.6. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. It is with respect to the hope and resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. So he is saying this is Israel's hope. It was the hope of resurrection. In 24.15 he says, Having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection. So that was the hope, the hope of Israel. Acts 28.20 says, For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak to you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. Acts 26.6-8 says, And now I stand here on trial because of the hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to obtain. They earnestly worship night and day, and for this hope I am accused by Jews. O king, why is it thought incredible to any man, to any of you, that God raises the dead? So it's clear from this that Paul viewed the resurrection would fulfill the hope of the promises made by God to the fathers, made by God to Israel. Now the word resurrection doesn't appear in the Tanakh. But the concept does. We see it in Daniel 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake 
That's resurrection. They've been sleeping in the dust. They're waking up. Some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. This is the resurrection of the just and the unjust. Then in verse 13, he says this, But go your way till the end, and you shall rest, and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. Here we see a resurrection that happens at the end of the age, or the end of days. That's important, that's the timing of it, and we'll talk about that shortly. Let's go over the biblical view of resurrection, what we know the Bible tells us. First of all, it's interesting to note that the Bible never uses these terms. It never talks about a resurrected body. It doesn't use resurrection of the body, and it doesn't use physical resurrection. It may surprise you. The church uses those terms a lot. The Bible never uses those terms. The terms the Bible does use are the resurrection of the dead and the resurrection from the dead. So in order to understand resurrection, we need to understand death. Because resurrection is from the dead. And to understand death, we need to go back to the beginning in Genesis. The book of, in the book of Genesis, we see God creating man. Genesis 2, 7 and 8. Then Yahweh God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. And Yahweh God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So God created Adam and Eve. He puts them in the garden. The garden is where God dwells. That's God's home. That's God's holy habitation. He and the divine council meet there. So he places them in the, in the garden and he gives them a command. Yahweh God took man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And Yahweh God commanded man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But, so, help yourself, eat anything you want, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat it, you will surely die. So, enjoy everything that's there, but this one tree, don't eat it. So, he warned Adam regarding the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He warned him, Adam disobeyed God, he ate of that tree. And Genesis 3, 6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Now, let me ask you this. Did Adam die that day? Well, he didn't die physically. Adam lived at least 800 years beyond the day that he ate the fruit, but God said he would die the day he ate, and we know that God cannot lie. Adam did not die physically that day, but he died spiritually. And that's what's the important thing to understand. Resurrection is resurrection from dead, not physical death, spiritual death. Adam didn't die physically, he died spiritually the moment he disobeyed. And that's what spiritual death is. Spiritual death is separation from God. God had brought him into the garden, he had fellowship with God. He walked with God, he communed with God. When he sinned, God put him out of the garden. <coughs> Excuse me. He was separated. Genesis 3, 23-24 says, Therefore Yahweh God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So he sins, he's removed from the garden, he's removed from the presence of God. That's spiritual death. That is separation. Look at Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Behold, Yahweh's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so he does not hear. It's man's sin that separated him. Spiritual death is to be separated from God. Look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, he doesn't mean they were physically dead. They weren't physically dead. They were spiritually dead. He says, in which you once walked following the course of this world. See, they were walking around in this spiritual death, so it wasn't physical. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love where which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So God here, here's, we're dead. And then it says, but God. God changes the situation. He says, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Now Paul uses an adversative coordinating conjunction here. Day, in the Greek, is translated the word but. It introduces God's actions toward us in contrast to our plight in verse 1. We were dead, but God. Our salvation hangs entirely on those two words. We were dead, but God. We were enslaved to sin, but God. We were trapped, but God. We were self-destructing, but God. We were lost in sin, but God, rich in His mercy, united us to Christ. Because of His sin, man is separated from God. He's dead in trespasses and sins. And the focus of God's plan of redemption is to restore through Christ what man lost in Adam. Romans 5, 18 and 19, Paul says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation. That's Adam. Adam's sin that led to condemnation for all men. So, one act of righteousness leads to justification. Christ came along as the last Adam. He lived righteously. He brought justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, again Adam, the many were sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That last part is so important that we understand the reason we are righteous is not because of anything we do, can do, ever will do. We are righteous because of the obedience of the One. And when we trust in that One, we receive His righteousness. Now, because of Adam's sin, we're all born dead. We're all born separated from God. But through Christ came the resurrection from the dead to all who trust in Him. Yeshua came to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3.8 says, The one who commits sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. Now what are the works of the devil that Yeshua came to destroy? Well, John said earlier that Christ appeared to take away sins in 3.5. Something he achieved by offering himself as an atoning sacrifice, 2 2 and 4 10. He also says that Yeshua's blood, his death, cleanses his people from their sins, 1 7 and 1 9. We can safely, I think, infer then that because of his atoning death, Yeshua dealt with the problem of human sin and in so doing destroyed the works of the devil. So the works of the devil was to separate man from God. Spiritual death. He he separated them. Christ came to destroy that separation. He came to redeem man from spiritual death. To resurrect man back into the presence of God. Now the Bible is God's book about His plan to restore the spiritual union of His creation. Resurrection is not about bringing physical bodies up out of the graves. It's about restoring man into the presence of of God. Now let's talk for a minute about Shoal and Hades. Prior to Yeshua's messianic work, nobody went to heaven. All right, 1 John 5:20 says that Yeshua is eternal life. And the Bible teaches that nobody had eternal life until the age to come. Mark 10:30 says, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions. Then he says this, and in the age to come, eternal life. Now, if prior to Yeshua's finished messianic work, no one went to heaven, where did people go when they died? Well, in the Tanakh, the Hebrew word for where they went prior to the resurrection is Sheol. Now, in the New Testament, the Greek word is Hades. What this place was is not something that everybody agrees on. Okay? 
Most scholars see Sheol as either the grave or some sort of reference to a place in the earth that everyone goes. Now, on this issue, I said everybody doesn't agree. Jeff and I don't agree. And and we've talked about this many times and we don't seem to be getting anywhere with each other. But um, I... I'm of a firm belief that there's many more people on Team Jeff than on Team Dave in this in this in this idea. But I just want you to hear me out, and you know, I wanted to get one of those little tables and sit at the table and say, I believe that Sheol is the grave. Change my mind, okay? So please, if if you can, change my mind. All right. <clears throat> but so people either believe it's the grave, you're just dead, and I'm kind of there. Or it's a place in the earth. Now, the latter view is part of the three-tiered cosmology of ancient Israel and other a peoples. Now, people will say, well, we have to believe in a place called Sheol because the Israelites believed in that place. <clears throat> will you dump this out and put it in here? I can't drink out of it. Sorry. This is a, a picture of Israelite cosmology. Okay, this is what the Israels believe. Flat earth, a dome over it, water on top of that. God was above the dome. And you can see down there below the earth is Sheol. All right? It was a place under the earth. They believed it was a place. And, you know, so people argue, well, the Israelites believed it. Well, they did. But you know that the Israelites also believed in something called the cosmic tree. The Israelites believe that running through the center of this earth, there's a gigantic tree that's branches go to heaven and whose roots go down to Sheol. But I don't really know of anybody that believes that today. So just because the Israelites believe something doesn't make it true. They believe some things that weren't true. So, some see Sheol as a place, a realm, where spirits or souls of the dead are waiting resurrection. Um, they see it as an unconscious survival. It's not non-existence. It's merely a state of existence where one is not conscious or aware of the passage of time. They really don't know anything. It's like they're sleeping or whatever. Some see it as a semi-conscious state. Now, I'm not sure I get that. I don't know what they mean by semi-consciousness. Do you wake up every once in a while and look around or kind of like an LSD trip or something? I don't know. It sounds kind of weird. Others see it as a conscious state. In other words, you're all just sitting around waiting, you know, talking and having a good time, fellowship, and waiting for... Well, I wish the Lord would hurry up, you know. (laughs) So it's a holding tank for departed spirits, right? Basically. Now, here's my question. Just think think about this for a minute. All right, Shoal is a place where spirits or souls go after they're dead. How big is it? How big would it have to be? How big are spirits? How much room does a spirit take up? You know, all these spirits are there, and are they conscious? Are they unconscious? What, What is happening? Well... There's a lot of things about that concept that I have trouble wrapping my head around. Okay, I, I understand Israel believed that. And they, they believed in a place that after you died, you went to this place and you waited. Hopefully you got resurrected out of that place. My view on Sheol is that it's synonymous with death. Throughout the Tanakh, we see this is a, a fact in numerous, n- numerous passages. They talk about death and Sheol, and they talk about them in parallel. Psalm 49, 14. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. In other words, death will rule over them. He's the shepherd. So the sheep go to Sheol. The shepherd death reigns over them. And the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Now watch. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol. That sounds like the grave to me. You put in the grave, you decompose, your, soul, your form is consumed. With no place to dwell. Psalm 89.48 says, What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? So, here's the thing though. Whether you think Sheol is a place, or whether you think it's death, doesn't really matter for this discussion. Okay? What matters is that Sheol was a place where all men went to prior to the resurrection. Be it the grave, be it a place, everybody went there. What else is important is that we understand that the Bible makes it clear that there is something beyond Sheol for the righteous. Even though Job says this, As the cloud fades and vanishes, so he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. 
Now, that would be Joel's experience. You see people die, they put them in the grave, they don't come back out. Well, this is true of the unrighteous. But I want you to notice Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2.6. She says, Yahweh kills and brings to life. Man, a lot of people would have a problem with Hannah saying that today. God kills? No, God doesn't do that. Our neighbor would have a real problem with that, okay? Because God never killed anybody, he said. He, she said, he brings down to Sheol and he raises up. So she goes, God kills, he brings to life, he puts people in Sheol, and he raises them out of there. Now what's interesting here is raises up is a literal translation, and it speaks of resurrection. The idea is that of coming up, whether it be out of the place under the earth, or out of the grave. Notice the upward language in Proverbs 15, 24. The path of life leads upward for the prudent that he may turn away from Sheol beneath. The upward idea here is contrasted with Sheol, which is below. Again, it's either the grave or it's in Israelite cosmology. It's below the earth. So in Hannah's theology of Sheol, to die is to be brought down there where the other dead are, but to be rescued from that condition is to be brought back to life. And that is something that only the Lord can do. Now, the Tanakh uses many metaphors and similes to describe Sheol, but the bottom line is, it's death. You're dead. That's why you go there. So I see Sheol used to speak of a place, or not of a place, not of a realm, but of just death in the grave. It's a synonym for the grave, synonym for being dead. And when someone's in Sheol, they're dead. They just cease to exist. That's what resurrection's all about, bringing them out of the dead. But the hope of Israel was resurrection. They hoped that Yahweh would raise them from death. So whatever your view of Sheol, again, whether it's a realm, whether it's just death, where the spirits of the souls are dead, hold in a waiting place, awaiting resurrection, or is death in the grave, the bottom line is, and the most important thing for this understanding is, it wasn't heaven. They died, they didn't go to heaven. They went to the grave, they went to this waiting place. Now in Acts 2.29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Okay, so David, he goes on in verse 34, he says, For David did not ascend to the heavens. So David was dead, but he didn't go to heaven. But he had a promise that someday he would. God had promised to redeem his people from the grave. Hosea 13, 14 says, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Comparison is hidden from my eyes. Now Psalm 49, 15 says the same thing. God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. These verses express hope that God will provide salvation beyond the grave, beyond death. One of the few references in the Tanakh to life after death. These verses anticipate the clear New Testament teaching of life after death, of eternal life, of salvation with God. Now, all people believe to go to Sheol when they died. Everybody, when they died, they went to Sheol. 89.48, what man can live and never see death? Everybody who lives, dies. Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Now to be taken out of Sheol, whether a place or the grave, and brought into the presence of the Lord is what the Bible calls resurrection. It has nothing to do with coming up out of a grave It's either coming up out of death, coming back to life in the presence of God, or being taken out of this holding tank, this waiting place, Sheol, and being brought into the presence of God. Now, so let's talk about the time of the resurrection. When is this supposed to happen? Because most people are looking forward to a resurrection somewhere out in the future. But according to the Bible, when was it to take place? Well, the Scripture testify that the time of the resurrection was to be at the end of the Old Covenant age. 
We know that the Old Covenant ended in A.D. 70 with the destruction of the Jewish Temple. The disciples knew that the fall of the Temple and the destruction of the city meant the end of the Old Covenant age and the inauguration of a new age. Look at Daniel 12. He says, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, at the time of this great trouble, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, he said there's going to be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation. That's when the resurrection is going to happen. And that sounds just like what Yeshua said in Matthew 24, 21, for then there shall be a great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. So here Yeshua is speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem. So when Jerusalem is destroyed, those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Now notice verse 3. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now take that verse from Daniel and compare it to Matthew 13. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. Okay, the end of the Jewish age, the end of the old covenant age. This is not talking about the end of a world. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now Daniel 12.3 says, The wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky. Matthew says the righteous will shine like the sun. Both Daniel 12 and Matthew 13 are speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And the resurrection is an event that was to happen at that time. Now in verses verses 4 and 8 of Daniel 12 identify this time as the time of the end. Daniel 12, 4 says, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal up the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Now, in response to Daniel's question at the end of verse 6, How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? An angel answers him and says, And I heard men clothed in linen, who was above the waters, and a stream raised his of the stream, and he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever ever, that it will be for a time, times, and a half time. How long is that? Three and a half years. Okay? The judgment against Jerusalem, the siege of Jerusalem lasted three and a half years. What's going to happen with this time, times, and half times? And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, this is the destruction of Jerusalem. The holy people are crushed. Three and a half years. All these things shall be finished. This speaks of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. The last verse in Daniel 12 records a promise given to Daniel about his own personal resurrection. Go your way to the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Now the statement of verses 1, 7, 11, and 12 tie the resurrection to the time immediately following the destruction of Jerusalem. What Daniel had written was well ingrained into the thinking of the Jews. And we see from Yeshua's discussion with Martha that Martha had no doubt about the timing of the resurrection. In John 11, 23 and 24, Yeshua said to her, Your brother will rise again. Remember, Lazarus has died. Yeshua goes there. He says, he tells her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So Yeshua taught that resurrection would happen on the last day. Not the last day of the world, the last day of the age of the Old Covenant. The Jewish age would come to an end. Yeshua taught the resurrection would happen 
on the last day. We see this in John 6, 39 and 40. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. There's a resurrection on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Now, when is this last day? Well, to the Jews, time was divided into two periods. The Mosaic Age, which they believed they were living in, and the Messianic Age, which to them was still future. The Messiah was viewed as the one who would bring in a new world, and the period of the Messiah was therefore correctly characterized by the synagogue as the world to come. All through the New Testament, you see these two ages in contrast. This age, the age to come. And the sad thing is, most believers read that today, and they say this age, and they think it's this age, and this age is not this age. This age was that age, and we're in the age to come. You got all that? Simple, right? A, this age and the age to come. Look what Peter says, 1 Peter 1.20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. So Yeshua came to die in the last days of the age that was the Old Covenant age, the Jewish age. That age came to an end with the destruction of the Jewish temple. Now the last times or last days were the last days of the Old Covenant. Look at Hebrews 9.26. For when He would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, but as it is, He appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Now when was it that Yeshua appeared? Well, He was born, not at the beginning, but at the end of the ages. And to suppose that He meant that Yeshua's incarnation came near the end of the world would be to make this statement false. The world has already lasted longer since the incarnation than the whole duration of the Mosaic economy, from the Exodus to the destruction of the Temple. Yeshua was manifest at the end of the Jewish age. The last days of the Old Covenant. So resurrection was to happen at the end of the Jewish age, at the end of the Old Covenant. We know what happened in AD 70. Paul spoke of the nearness of the resurrection in his day, because Paul lived in the last days. Look at Acts 24, 15. Having hope toward God, which they themselves also wait for, that there is about to be a rising again from the dead. Now, the word here is mellow, and so Young's correctly translates it, translates it as there's about to be. You read this in most translations, it just says there's going to be a resurrection. But mellow, it's about to be. Now listen to me and think about this. If the time of the resurrection is seen as 8070, then what does that tell us about the nature of of the resurrection. It tells us it's spiritual rather than physical. And it's a fundamental fact of eschatology that time defines nature. Since we know that the resurrection is past, we know that it was spiritual, not physical. The resurrection of the dead that took place at the end of the Old Covenant in AD 70 was not a biological resurrection of dead decaying bodies, but a release from Sheol of all who had been waiting through the centuries to be united with God in His heavenly kingdom. We can see from the teaching of Hymenaeus and Philetus several things about the resurrection beliefs of the early Christians. This passage in 2 Timothy 2, 17-18, and if you're not familiar with this, this is used by many Anti-preterists, they call the preterism the Hyamnean heresy, you know, meaning that we're messed up like these guys. Well, look what it says. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth. All right, these guys went off the path. They swerved from the truth. Why? Saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. So they call preterism the Hymenean heresy because we're swerving from the path because we say the resurrection already happened. You know what the difference is between them and us? 2,000 years. Okay, they're saying it before AD 70. They're saying that the resurrection already happened. Which tells me this, people. 
they must have believed that the resurrection would be spiritual in nature. And therefore, not subject to confirmation by any physical evidence. If they had believed that the resurrection would involve physical bodies coming out of the graves as taught today, then Hymenaeus and Philetus could never have convinced anybody that it already happened. They come to you and say, guess what? The resurrection happened. And they're like, really? And they go out to their backyard where their ancestor is buried and they start digging up to find out. Or they go to the cave and they look in the cave where their ancestor is and they're like, well, the body's still in there. This could have been confirmed. They could check this out. They must have believed that life on the earth would go on with no material change after the resurrection. They didn't believe that it would be on a renovated planet earth as a consequence of the resurrection. If they did, the teaching of Hymenaeus and Philetus would have been impossible. No one would have paid any attention to them. They would just said, well, you guys are crazy. Everything's still the same as it was. Our ancestors are still in the caves. They're still in the graves. Nothing has changed. How can you say it's already passed? See, the reason that they're teaching that the resurrection that already happened was overthrowing the faith of some was that it postulated a consummation of the spiritual kingdom while the earthly temple at Jerusalem still stood. This is a mixture of law and grace, old and new. This destroyed the faith of some making the works of the law part of the new covenant. All right. Now, we, a question that always comes up when you're talking about the resurrection, was Christ physically resurrected? Yes. Absolutely. That's what we're here celebrating today. He physically came out of the grave. No doubt about it. Well, people then ask, well, since Christ's resurrection was physical, won't ours be? No. Christ's actual resurrection was His going to Hades and coming back out. When He was resurrected from Hades, He was raised into His original body, which was transformed into His heavenly form. This was done as a sign to the apostles that He had done what He promised. The resurrection of Yeshua's body verified for the disciples the resurrection of His soul. And David had prophesied, For you will not abandon My soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Now Peter preached that David looked ahead and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. In Acts 2.31 he says, He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. These verses speak of both spiritual death, the soul in Hades, and physical death, the decay of the flesh. Yeshua was resurrected from both. And the reason there are differences in the way we are raised and the way which Christ was raised is because there's differences between Christ's body and our body. Differences such as Christ is the only one who ever lived who was both fully God and fully man. Nobody else fits that category. He was God incarnate. He was the God-man. He was a theanthropic person. Christ also was the only one born of a virgin. Therefore, He didn't have original sin. Christ is the only one who ever lived a sinless life. He's the only one promised that His flesh would not see decay. His human body was not subject to original sin. It wasn't corruptible. He was impeccable. Nor did He ever commit sin and become corrupted. And because of this, He could keep His self-same body, whereas we cannot. Unless Yeshua's body had been resurrected, His disciples would have had no assurance that the soul had been in Hades and been resurrected. The physical resurrection of Christ was essential to to verify the spiritual to which it was tied. While the physical resurrection of our bodies really wouldn't have any point. Since we're not going to continue living on this planet, we're not going to continue to breathe this air, eating earth's food, when we die physically. So we don't need to be resurrected in a physical body because we're leaving the physical. So, what does happen to us at death? Well, since the resurrection is past, what happens to believers when they die? Well, their physical body goes to the dust from which it came. Ecclesiastes 3.20 says, all go to one place. All are from the dust, and to the dust all return. And their spirit 
is united to the spiritual body and goes to be with the Lord. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 35-38 says, But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and what you sow is not the body that is to be. In other words, it's a different body, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat and some other grain. But God gives it a body as He has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. So we get the same kind of body Christ has, but we don't get it the same way He got it. He was raised in His physical body. That body was changed to a spiritual body. We get the spiritual body. We get a new spiritual body which arises out of the inner man. God gives us that spiritual body. It's fit to live in a spiritual realm. You don't need the physical in the spiritual realm. We won't need this body anymore. He says that it's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. Now, if there is a natural body, he says, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. Now, this affirms, I think, very clearly two different types of bodies. There's a natural body that dies. We receive a spiritual body. Paul says it is raised a spiritual body. Now, those of us who have trusted Christ in the new covenant age, we have life and we don't need to be resurrected. Look at John 11, 25 and 26. Yeshua said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. What's the difference between those? Is there a difference? I think so. Hang on, we'll look at it. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So Yeshua is saying, he who believes in me shall live spiritually, even if he dies physically, and everyone who lives physically and believes in me shall never die spiritually. So we have two categories of believers that are discussed here. Those who will die before the resurrection. All right, Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. They've trusted in Christ, so they've died physically, but they still are going to live at the resurrection. They are going to be raised. And there are those who are going to live on. He says, and everyone who lives, they live past the resurrection, and believes in me, shall never die. He's not saying they'll never die physically, but they'll never die spiritually, because they believed in Him. They're going to die physically, but they will never die spiritually. For those who lived under the old covenant, Christ was the resurrection. He says, I am the resurrection. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. But to those who lived into the days of the new covenant, he is the life. Because he's the life, everyone who lives and believes in him will never die spiritually. So under the new covenant, believers, which we are in, there is no death, spiritually speaking. In other words, if you've trusted Christ, you cannot die spiritually. You cannot be separated from Christ. No separation from God. What Christ did is permanent. 1 Corinthians 15, 54-57. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Now, I think the, the idea of death here is got a several meanings to it, but he's talking about spiritual death is done away, but death, there was a God, Mote, who was the God of death, and that God was also defeated in this. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord, Yeshua, the Christ. Revelation 21.4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Now, people take this as physical and say, well, we won't die physically anymore. So you're just going to stay in a physical body forever? It's not suited for a spiritual realm. He's talking about spiritual death here in the kingdom of God, which we dwell in. Their death shall be no more. Nobody will be separated from God. No believer will be. 
And because there is no spiritual death, guess what? There's no need of a resurrection. We have eternal life. We can never die spiritually. Therefore, we don't need a resurrection. At death, we go immediately to heaven in our spiritual body. The resurrection was a one-time event in which the Old Covenant saints were brought out of show death to be with the Lord. We have put on immortality. We have put on the immortal body. And when we die physically, and when we die physically, we just go to be with the Lord. As believers, we live right now in the presence of God. And in physical death, we simply drop the body, the physical body, we put on a spiritual body, which is meant for the spiritual realm, and we dwell throughout eternity with the Lord. That is my understanding of the resurrection. So we celebrate this day because this is the day the Lord rose. And He rose as the first fruits of the resurrection. Promising resurrection to all of us who trust Him. So believers, we will all physically die someday. But spiritually, because we have life now, that life carries us into the realm of the divine and we live forever in the presence of our God. Let's pray. Father, I thank You this morning for the opportunity to look at this text. Lord, I pray that we would understand what the Bible has to say about resurrection. Lord, thank You for the life that we have right now in You. That we are alive. That we are in fellowship with our God. I pray, Lord, we'd take advantage of that. We'd live in such a way as to honor You as our God. And Father, when we someday physically die, we know it's just leaving this realm, moving into the realm of the spiritual. We thank You for that, Lord. We look forward to that day when we'll be united with You. Thank You, Lord, for Your great love for us. Amen.